0: The message you are listening to is recorded by Campus Outreach for the 2019 Campus Outreach New Year's Conference. More information about Campus Outreach New Year's Conference can be found at conycnd.com. All right, everyone, we're going to get started. Uh, Can you hear me in the back? It's just my family, so if if you can't hear me, I'm a quiet talker, just give me a little thumbs up or something. Uh, My name is Chris Coons. I work on staff. Thanks, I appreciate that. Um, I've been on staff for eight and a half years now. Uh, the last seven and a half years at Bowling Green State University in Northwest Ohio, so I'm part of CEO Columbus. But I grew up about 25 minutes from here. So I'm Indy born and bred, went to college at IUPUI. Um, so if there's any Jackson here, you guys are still near and dear to my heart. I appreciate that. Um, <clears throat> But before I get started, I want to show you a picture of my family real quick. So that is my wife of five and a half years, Olivia. She's not in here, so I can talk all kinds of things about her. Um, She's my secret sauce. She's the straw that serves the drink. Those are my two little girls. The little one at the bottom is Kay. She's three and a half years old. And then the one that Olivia is holding is Lena. She's almost two now. And I show you this so you can get to know me a little bit better. But I'm going to come back to them at some point in this talk. They're going to be important to this. Um, But let me ask you this question Who here is really tired? And who here said, I don't really need lunch, and now you're regretting it because you're really hungry? Oh, nobody, great. Who here ate too much for lunch, and now you're regretting it because you're really tired? Okay? Um, Who here is a little too cold? A little too hot? All right, what I'm trying to give to you guys is that there is a lot of reason for you to be distracted right now. And I know that because I sat in these chairs not too long ago. I understand what it's like being here. Uh, The 2.30 slot is a tough one because you just want to go take a nap. Um, But I am convinced that because you are here, God has something to say to you. So I just ask you, fight through whatever it is that is making you uncomfortable right now. And listen, because it's probably not going to be a lot of this talk that hits you, but something in this is going to stick with you. And I want you to be able to hear it. So try to press through that. Let me pray real quick, and now I'm going to introduce you to what we're going to be talking about. Father, I just pray that uh, this would be a time about you. Um, that this would be a time where we can be with you, where we can hear from your word and ultimately just see Jesus in a way we never have So we pray all this in your name, amen. Amen. So the topic is a better story. So hopefully you're in the right room. If you're not, you can leave and I won't be offended. But that's the seminar that you're in right now is a better story. So what I'm gonna be telling you about is this idea of narratives. So narratives are things that control how we perceive the world around us, how we perceive reality is through narratives. And the, the definition of narrative is just simply a spoken or written account of connected events, or another word for it is story. Um, And more importantly, narratives are the stories we tell ourselves. Narratives are the stories we tell others about ourselves. And narratives are the the stories that our culture tells us about ourselves. So all these different stories are flowing in and out of us. And those are the stories that shape our reality. It informs the way we view the world, and every important belief we have is informed by a narrative that we've connected to in some way. So my aim today is to expose how narratives shape our beliefs, show how our culture and even us ourselves tell ourselves stories, um, how those stories uh, shape us and help you identify the narratives you tell yourself, help identify the narratives the culture is telling us, um, and show you how the Bible, and ultimately the gospel, tells us a better story. Tells us a story we desperately need to hear. Uh, so first, how do narratives shape our beliefs, and how do people use narratives to shape us? Um, when we look at the events that occur around us, the one who possesses the better or more compelling or more convincing story is typically the one that possesses the control or view of reality in our world. Um, the more compelling narrative tends to shape the public perception. Um, And if you don't like the narrative that's being said, you just call it fake news, right? You just look at it and say, no, that's not even real. That's not even a real narrative. Listen to my story, okay? That's one way to dismantle a narrative and insert a different one. So you just call it fake news. Um, Let's look at one in particular. So this isn't controversial. Uh, The abortion debate. There's a pro-life narrative and there's a pro-choice narrative, okay? Okay? The one with the more compelling narrative will shape your view of the, the debate. Um, the, essentially, the pro-life narrative says that when someone gets pregnant, when a woman gets pregnant, that is a life inside of her. So if you want to end or terminate that life, you must hate life. Okay, That's the narrative that this, is rallying around. The pro-choice narrative would say a woman's body is hers to do with what she wishes. So if you want to control how she handles her body, you must hate freedom. You hate freedom in this instance. So you see how they're telling stories about the same event, but there's two radically different ways of telling that story. Um, A good narrative also soundly beats even the best of data. Um, So a better story will trump out good data every day, every day. A good narrative beats even the best of data when it comes to convincing you and when it comes to driving action. So again, another non-controversial issue, the O.J. Simpson trial. If you look back on recounts of what happened in that trial, uh, most people will say that the prosecution had a better data argument. They were introducing all this DNA evidence that pointed one direction. The O.J. Simpson did it. But DNA evidence was new, and they said the jurors had come out and said afterwards, it was just boring. They're hearing all this facts, all this science. It doesn't really make sense. It doesn't really, we don't know how it fits. Um, It's pointing in one direction, we get that, but it just wasn't a very good story. Whereas the defense came up with a better story, a more compelling story for that jury. This whole idea, if the glove doesn't fit, you must quit. Johnny Cochran and the defense team told a better story and the better story always beats the data when it comes to convincing us and driving us forward. Um, In his book, Evangelism in a Skeptical World, Sam Chan talks about uh, the fact that we have these plausibility structures. We have plausibility structures, and they are formed through three key events. They're formed from our community, so our trusted family and friends. They're formed through data and evidence, and they're formed through experience. And we would like to think as rational human beings that we are most convinced by evidence and data. But in actuality, our views of what is plausible and implausible is shaped primarily by our community. Our community is the first and foremost thing that shapes what we view as possible, plausible. um, And data and evidence is last. Experience is second. So he shares this example of, what if I told you that a UFO came and landed in my backyard? and beamed us onto it, and took us to Jupiter, and showed us around Jupiter, and then came back here, and because we traveled through the space-time continuum, only one second on Earth passed. What would you say to that? And he says, there would be a blaring red light going off saying, it's not plausible. My family and friends would call that crazy. I've never experienced anything like that, and there doesn't seem to be much data to support that. But in the same way, for most people uh, in this room, perhaps, If I were to tell you, I believe that God himself wrapped himself in human flesh, came to earth, was born in Nazareth 2,000 years ago, went to a cross and died, and saved the world from its sins, many people in here would say, that makes sense. Why is that one more plausible than the Jupiter story? Both seem crazy, if you look at it just point blank, but your community shapes your perception of reality. And I do think that there's a lot of evidence to support that, Um, and if you research it, I think that you'll agree with me, but we have these plausibility structures that say things to us. And ultimately, we even explain away evidence and experience when it comes against, when it rubs against what our community would say. So he says again, what if I were to take you to my backyard and let you touch the spaceship, because it's still parked there. Even if we were to touch the spaceship, we would say, "Ah, I still don't think that's true. I've touched it, I've felt it, but no. There's too much riding against that. Um, And this happens all the time. So even think about Santa Claus. For those of you who grew up believing in Santa Claus, you believed in Santa Claus and you talked to your friends about Santa Claus and all of them believed about it and your family told you it was real. So you were like, yeah, this is a real thing. But even when your friend confronted you with the evidence and said, hey, do you know that Santa Claus would need to visit 5,556 houses a second in order to deliver gifts all over the world on Christmas Eve, you still said, I still believe he's real. (laughs) There's some Santa magic in there. I don't know how it happens, but I believe, I believe he's real. Until your community tells you a better story, a different story. Um, This happened all the time with Jesus. When Jesus would go around casting out demons, and people would say, that is a good man, casting out demons. The teachers and the scribes and the Pharisees would say, by the prince of demons, he casts out demons. And Jesus said, what? what? What are you talking about? They didn't like the story they were shaping. They didn't like the evidence they were seeing, so they told a different story. We see it again when he is healing, performing miracles, doing all these different things, and then they would come to him and say, if you really are the Christ, give us a sign. And he would sit there and say, what do you mean give us a sign? I've given you the sign but a generation that asks for a sign is not going to receive the one they want. I'm not going to give you the one you want. So again, they're looking at the evidence, but it doesn't fit with the story they're telling. So they want a different one. So let me give you a few examples of uh, narratives in our world, how they shape us, how how they form us. An easy one is just political campaigns. So any political campaign is telling you a story. This idea of make America great again Or let's go further back, let's go to Obama's change. He's telling you a story. He's saying there's something wrong with this country, there's something broken with this country, we can all agree on that, so I'm gonna give you some change. If you elect me, it's gonna move forward, we're gonna progress, we're gonna change, we're gonna be better. And then Trump's campaign of Make America Great Again, he's saying we're gonna progress, we're gonna be better, but it's not through this progressive agenda. We need to go back to the way things were. We need to reinvent the values that we once had to make America what it, was, what it was, when it was great. So both of those are narratives, trying to control the story, the perception of reality. Um, I told you I was gonna go back to uh, my family, and this is a picture, just to give you a little taste. We are all princesses all day. okay? This is Cinderella dress here on the left. You got Belle dress here in the middle in the yellow. This is Frozen dress that we got for Christmas. Oh, my goodness. We were losing our minds, okay? So we are Disney princesses all the time. And if you want to know a narrative in a Disney movie, you just got to look at the main songs, okay? You got to look at some of the key songs throughout the movie, and they are going to tell you the narrative in the movie. So here's some narratives that are easy to pick up on. Let's start with Frozen. Let's start with Frozen. Here's the title song, Let It Go. Here's some words in it. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. And then she says, let it go, let it go. Okay? So what is Elsa saying? She's saying, here's the narrative. If you want happiness, if you want peace, if you want joy, if you want freedom, you need to disconnect from every, everyone around you. People only hold you down. People only hold you back. I need to isolate myself in order to really be free and not hurt anyone ever again. But in actuality, what she realizes at the end is that um, the only way to truly be free is in committed community. She needs the committed community of family and friends around her to experience that love that really sets her free from the demons that rise up inside of her. Her whole life, she's been trying to isolate. But she realizes that everything she's looking for, she actually has to integrate to find. So that's the narrative. Um, Let's go Pocahontas, okay? Who's seen this one? This is an old one, okay? Pocahontas, one of the key songs in that. They're savages, savages. They're barely even human, okay? When this song comes on in our home, we have to skip it because it's so violent and offensive, okay? Now my oldest daughter, when she hears it, says, that's a naughty song. We have to skip it, okay? So look at the narrative in this story. The Native Americans, the Europeans, they're both shouting the same thing at each other. The Europeans are saying, look at those multicolored skinned people. They are savages. They're barely even human. Maybe they're not even human. So we are doing the world a favor by eliminating them from this world and taking their land. The Native Americans look back at them and say, that's how you view us? That's how you're going to treat us? You're the savage. You're barely even human. How dare you say those things about us? And even the bad guy, I don't even know the bad guy's name in it. But he's telling the people, he said, come over to America with me. We're going to find a lot of gold, and we're all going to be filthy rich. They show up, they start digging, they don't find anything. He says, uh, the gold must be with those Indians. And, if we ki- and they don't want us to come on their land. Not, not because it's theirs. That's, that's ridiculous. They don't want us to come on their land because they know where the gold is. It's with them. They're hiding it from us. We've got to go kill them and take that gold. He's trying to tell a story. It's going to invigorate his people to go and do his bidding. Okay? There's another story. What does Pocahontas say? In the color of the wind, she says, the world is broad and diverse. We actually need each other to experience the fullness of it. She says, can you sing with all the voices in the mountain? No. You need someone else to help you sing. Can you paint with all the colors in the wind? Not by yourself. We need each other. So she's telling a different story. Okay? Finally, Princess and the Frog, who's seen this one? All right, this is one of the favorites in our house. This is a good one. Um, Tiana, who's this princess, she's come from rags. She says, the only way to get satisfaction, happiness, joy, is by working hard to earn it. You have to work hard for everything. If you work hard enough, you can get anything you want. Prince Naveen, he's a richy-rich kid. He says, the only way to really be satisfied is to pursue pleasure. Live your life to the fullest. If he were a little bit older, maybe he'd be saying, Drake's YOLO, I don't know. But he's saying, you gotta do it once and do it right. Live the high life. But in this key song, they meet Mama Odie, who's like, I don't know, she's some sort of witch doctor that lives in the swamp. It's kind of weird. But this is what she says. She says, you gotta dig, dig a little deeper, find out who you are, dig a little deeper, It really ain't that far. When you find out who you are, you find out what you need. Blue skies and sunshine guaranteed. All right, so she's got a counter-narrative for both of them. She's saying, it's not about working hard. It's not about pursuing pleasure. You actually need to realize who you are. You need to reflect. You need to do some self-reflection. Find out who you are, then you'll find out what you need. At some point in the song, she actually says uh, to Naveen, money ain't got no heart, money ain't got no soul. All you need is some self-control. She's saying, money never made you happy. Did it make you happy back then? So why do you want it now? You actually need self-control. She tells Tiana, you've got to stop working so hard. And actually, if you find out that you can just receive a gift, you'll find the happiness you're looking for. So those are some Disney narratives to help us give you an example of what it is. So how do we identify the narratives our culture tells us and that we actually tell ourselves? Let me start by just saying this happens really slowly. You have been telling yourself a story since the day you were born, basically. You've got 19, 20, 21 years of telling yourself a story. It's not going to be completely destroyed in one day. You need to tell yourself a better story for the next 15, 20, 30, 40 years to undercut that story that you've been telling yourself your whole life. So this happens all the time. We have a lot of stories we tell each o- ourselves, um, and we're always developing new ones. So how do you dig a little deeper as a were? Uh, you ask yourself the why question. Why do I do the things I do? Why do I feel the way I feel when I do these things? And even ask you the question of, why do I think this is going to make me happy by making this decision, by making this choice? Why do I think that this is the thing that's going to make me happy? Blaise Pascal, who's an old French mathematician and philosopher, says every decision that every man does, whether it's going to war or avoiding war, is done in a pursuit of joy. Even the man that hangs himself. Everything we do is a pursuit of joy. So ask yourself the question, why do I think that this decision is going to bring me joy? Why did coming to this conference, why did I decide that Ultimately, it's a pursuit of joy, but why did I think it was gonna deliver? Why? And some broader narratives can be exposed through personality profiling, so the Myers-Briggs or Enneagram, which I know that some of you are probably hearing that and cringing a little bit, and you're saying, don't put me in a box. Let me tell you right now, I already did. That's what we do. You see someone that like smiles and is really happy, and you're like, oh, they're a bubbly person, bubbly person box. So what personality profiling does is actually help, you, help me put you in a right box, rather than the wrong box. Um, And that's not, this is real broad general narratives, um, but some of that can help. Um, The other thing I would say is just through self-reflection or journaling, doing that kind of helps unearth some of the things that you believe, some of the stories you tell yourself. I dare you to do this. We are a culture that loves to be distracted, um, but I want you to sit in your room, alone, with no distractions for an hour. I guarantee that for most of us, 10 minutes into that, we would be squirming, because it's so uncomfortable. And I think part of the reason it's uncomfortable is because you're alone with yourself. And we do not like that. Because when you're alone with yourself, you actually have to deal with yourself. And that can be a scary thing. But you actually need to reflect on who you are, how God has made you. Um, Another thing I would say is you need to have someone that will tell you the truth in love. Someone or someones that will tell you the truth in love. And this is so important because some of your narratives are false and unhealthy, and you know it. You know it. So you actually need someone that you can say it out loud to and that you're not going to feel judged or condemned for saying what you know is Maybe a little bit crazy. But some of your narratives are false and unhealthy, and you have no idea. And the only way you're going to find out is if someone points it out to you. So this is a tool called the Johari Window. So you can just Google this, and it'll pull it up for you. Um, But if you look at it, you're just looking for intersection stuff. So what you know about you and what others know about you is just things that are out in the open. You know it, I know it, everybody knows it. It's not really too much of a secret. Um, But there are things that uh, that others know about you that you don't know about you. Those are your blind spots. And the only way to shrink those blind spots is to invite people to tell you those things about yourself. Sitting down with someone and saying, hey, you know what? I really know I'm not perfect. I know I'm kind of messed up. But will you tell me? There are some things I do that are annoying, that drive people crazy that I have no idea are annoying. I can't stand it when some people come to me and they're like, you know, and so-and-so does this, it is so annoying. And I think, well, did you tell them that? And they're like, no, I would never tell them that. Why not? They probably have no idea. <laughs> tell them. Tell them this truth in love, because you care about them. Because if you won't tell them, you probably really don't care about them. And then there's other things that you know about you, but no one else knows about you. And those are called secrets. Those are the things that the Bible would say are you are walking in the darkness. You're hiding them because you don't want people to know. You're ashamed of them. And now everybody doesn't need to know those things, but somebody needs to. And the only way to shrink that box is by allowing others into your life. Is by offering more information than you feel comfortable offering. And again, these need to be people you can trust, and you have to understand that by doing this, you are opening yourself up to harm. Because these people can use this information against you. Even someone that you really trust right now, you might not trust five years from now. But I think it's worth it. I think it's worth it to bring those things into the light, to let the light shine on it, and allow someone to tell you something true about it. That if you're in Christ, it's forgiven. You don't need to carry that shame around with you. And then finally, what you don't know about you and what others don't know about you, those are things that are hidden. They're hidden from everybody. And the only way to shrink that box Is by inviting people to criticize you and by inviting people in by willingly telling them things about yourself. That's the only way to shrink that box. That's how you understand and realize more of yourself. So let me tell you now how the gospel tells us a better story. A better story. First, because Jesus was the master storyteller, it says throughout the Bible that he taught in parables, he taught through stories as a way to show us more about ourselves. Um, and he doesn't give us a list of facts to prove who he is. He doesn't sit there and just data dump and say, hey, this is my lineage. I'm the chosen son of David. Got it? Let's move on. No, he tells stories to prove his points. Um, when, and typically when he does just data dump, when he does just tell people outright who he is, they get really mad. And ultimately they try to kill him because of it. He says things like, I am the bread of life. If you don't come to me, you can't, you can't really be full. You can't eat. If you don't eat from me, you'll never understand the Father. People are like, "Whoa, well, I do not like that. Let's get this guy gone." So when he wants to tell a story about forgiveness, about love, about how you can't earn the Father's love, how you can't earn anything <laughs> that's freely offered to you as a gift, rather than just telling them, hey, you know the worst thing you've ever done? The Father will forgive you. He doesn't just do that. He does do some of that. But he tells a story, Luke 15, 11 to 32. He says, there's a man who has two sons. And the younger son asked for his half of the inheritance and went off and squandered it in wild living. And he looks at himself and he says, what am I doing? When he comes back home, he has a speech prepared. Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm not worthy to be called your son. Please make me like one of your hired men. But the father sees him a long way off. And as he starts his speech, father says enough of this put a robe on his back, put sandals on his feet, put the ring on his finger we're throwing a party. he throws this party this love and forgiveness of the father he tells it through a story it doesn't just date dump. he tells a beautiful story and he talks about how his elder son came in and said what's going on, they said your son was gone, or your brother was gone he's back the father's throwing a party and the elder son becomes enraged When the father comes out to greet him, he says, you've never given me anything. Not even a a small goat for me and my friends. I worked for you all these long years. The father says, wasn't it right for me to do this? Because your brother was lost and now he's found. So he's telling the story about how even trying to earn it, you're missing the point. The point is the father. The point is that you get to be with the father who loves you, who forgives you, and is offering you a free gift. You just have to come home. You have to come home. So he tells this beautiful story. When he wants to communicate the importance of wisdom in where you place your faith, he doesn't just say, you need to build your life on me. If you don't build your life on me, things are going to go bad. He says some of that, but instead he tells a story. He says, anyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a man who built his house on the rock when the winds and the floods and the storms came, his house withstood it because it was built on the rock. But anyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And when the winds and the floods and the storms came, it fell and great was that fall. He doesn't just tell them the facts, but he tells them the story. He gives them a picture. And he says, man, there's one way to live your life and it's foolish. And there's one way to live your life that's very wise." He says, for both instances, life is hard. The rains and the floods and the storms come for both people, but one is able to withstand it. Who are you? Who are you? He tells this beautiful story. And ultimately, um, I think that this passage gives the best picture of them all. Luke 24, 13 to 32. It's a long passage, but I'd love for you to turn there and read it with me. This gives a great picture how Jesus is the storyteller that engages us in a way that's transformative (laughs) Pastor Stiles referenced this yesterday this is one of my favorite passages in the Bible it's a little bit longer so stick with me um So here's how it goes. I'm reading from the ESV. It says, that very day, two of them, two of Jesus' disciples were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. This is right after the crucifixion. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some of our women, some of the women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. When they did not find his body, they came back saying, They had even seen they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels, who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to a village, to which they were going. He acted as if he was going far- farther, but they argued. They urged him strongly, saying, "Stay with us for it is toward evening." And the day is now far spent. So he went to st- in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it, and he gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. And they said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? I love that phrase. Did not our hearts burn as he tells us the story? As he starts with Moses and goes all the way through the Bible, telling us the redemption story. Did our hearts not burn within us? I don't know about you, but I've had moments like that. I've had moments like that, reading the Bible and seeing how it's all pointing to Jesus. My heart burns. Our heart burns at the story. How could it not? Did not our hearts burn with us? See, open to us this word. So let me tell you why the gospel tells us a better story. First, it tells us a better story because it tells us a beautiful story. It tells us a beautiful story. It tells us the story of a king who will spare no expense to save his bride king who will do anything to get his princess to get his queen he'll do anything, he'll spare no expense it tells us the story of a prince who defeats every force of evil once and for all and restores what was good and right in the world anyone here seen Lord of the Rings? anyone here read it? okay if you haven't, the last Lord of the Rings won like 100 academy awards it's worth watching Um, but at the end of it, uh, there's a scene where evil has been defeated by these lowly hobbits and the human king is being crowned king at his coronation. There's these masses of people. They put the crown on his head they coronate him. He's beginning, people are beginning to bow and even the hobbits begin to bow before their friend, the king. Sorry, this is fantasy, so I don't know why. But um, <clears throat> the king looks at them and says, my friends, you bow to no one." And he bows before them. And all the crowds bow. That's not necessarily what makes me emotional. What makes me emotional is that the Bible says, one day, every knee will bow before the Savior of the world. It's just a picture. a silly children's tale. It's painting a picture for you of what's going to happen. These hobbits have saved the world, but Jesus has saved the real world. And every knee will bow before the prince who destroyed evil once and for all. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. It's a beautiful story. It's a beautiful story. The gospel tells us a better story because it tells us a satisfying story. The gospel tells us a and they lived happily ever after story. I don't know about you, but um, when I watch romantic comedies, especially those from the late 90s and early 2000s, there's a cynic in me that comes up at the end. Here's basically the pot line of every romantic comedy. I'm a guy. I like these things. I'm a girl. I don't like those things. There's no way we should be together. The guy starts dating the girl on a bet, typically. And you know what? They find out they like each other. But guess what? The girl finds out, broken up. This huge tragedy happens. So what happens next? The guy does something overly dramatic over the top and wins her back. And guess what? At the end, they're like, I love you, you love me, we're gonna be happy forever. And all that I can think of at the end of that is, until the next thing happens. You guys have made it through one conflict. (laughs) There's gonna be like 4,000 more in the next two weeks, the way you guys are pacing this out. Okay, so the cynic in me is like, that's not happily ever after. In fact, they're probably going to be broken up in two months. Um, The gospel tells us they lived happily ever after story, and it's true. It's real. Turn with me to Revelation 21, starting in verse 3. This is another one of my favorite passages. This is the second to last chapter of the Bible, okay? Okay. We're getting close to the end. But this is painting the picture to the future. Revelation 21, starting in verse 3. We're going to go read through 6. Here's what it says. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. The gospel tells us a satisfying story. The gospel tells us that there will come a day when you will have no need because you will be with the one who meets every need. This is going to sound weird, but I love it when my daughters cry. That sounds really weird. I understand. But I love it when my daughters cry because they're going to want daddy. Mm. And I get to hold them. And I love holding their little faces and wiping the tears off their cheeks. There will come a day when every tear you have cried will be wiped away. And it will be made right. And it will be better that you have cried them and had them wiped away than if you never cried them at all. There will come a day when sickness will be no more. There will come a day when hunger will be no more. Every longing you've ever felt will be met and satisfied, perfect. And you'll never feel another need. Because you'll be with the one who meets all of them. It's a satisfying story. It's a satisfying story. The gospel tells us a better story because it tells us a true story. And that's the question you really have to ask. Do you believe that? Do you believe that everything that the gospel is telling you is true? There are mountains and mountains of evidence to support the fact that what we have in the Bible, and particularly in the, the four gospels at the beginning of the New Testament, are accurate history. They're not just really good stories that someone told someday, their accurate history (laughs) but perhaps more powerful than that is the evidence of transformed lives of stories that have turned on a small hinge as Meg said that's more compelling to me those stories that this great story has left in its wake please explain to me why my life is the way it is if the gospel is not true Please explain to me how some of Jesus' greatest enemies became his most passionate followers if the gospel is not true. Please explain to me how it has spread and permeated every continent and every culture. Please explain to me how this story thrives where it is most hated if it's not true. The gospel tells us a better story because it tells us a true story. And ultimately, the cure for any false narrative is a true gospel counter-narrative. So Ian Cron, who's an Enneagram teacher, psychotherapist, he has a uh, podcast called Typology that I really enjoy, um, where he basically just gives free therapy, honestly. Uh, This is what he says... This is paraphrasing. He says, If you want to experience enduring transformation, you must discover your broken story and begin living in the gospel story God is telling you about yourself. If you will do that, you're going to experience enduring transformation. So let me tell you a little, or let me show you a little bit how this might work. Uh, Some of us have told this story to ourselves since we were kids I must be perfect because it's not okay to make mistakes. It's not okay to make mistakes, so I have to live perfectly. I'm striving for perfection. The gospel story that flows against that is you are loved and accepted in your flaws, in your imperfection. You're still loved. That's a better story and a true story if you're a child of God. Maybe this is the story you're telling yourself. It's not okay to trust myself, so I must be on guard always. The gospel narrative that tells you a different story is it's okay to trust yourself and you are safe in the mighty fortress that is your God. If you're a child of God, it's okay. You're safe. You can feel protected. Maybe this is the story you tell yourself. It's not okay to be myself, so I must appear successful at all costs must appear successful, perfect right at all costs. The gospel tells us a better story. You are loved for who you are, not for what you accomplish. It's a better story. It's a truer story. It's the right story. Maybe this is the narrative you tell yourself. My needs are a problem, so I can't have any. I have to retreat into my mind, solve all my problems myself. The gospel tells us a better story. It says, your needs are not a problem, and you are in the hands of the one who has all resources at his disposal and invites you to bring your needs to him. It's a better story. So here's just a few points of application and then I want to open this up to Q&A. Um, how do I... Learn more about this? Or how do I tell myself a better story? Number one, you need to know the story of the Bible. You need to know the narrative of the Bible. You need to know the narrative of the gospel. You need to read the Bible. You need to study the Bible. You need to memorize it. You need to talk about it with others. You need to teach it to people. You need to share it with people. All these ways, you need to ingest as much of the Bible as you can. And you need to have a long-term picture of this, okay? You don't need to know everything that the Bible says tomorrow, but you should start today learning more about the bible one of the best things i did when i was in college is i committed to read through the entire bible in a year and i did it seven times i just ingested it just drank it just soaked in it i didn't study it deeply when i was doing it just read it but that reading over years and years impacted me um and you need to know yourself so, you need to know the narrative of the Bible, but you need to know yourself as well. You need to know yourself personally through journaling and reflection. Um, a Harvard study said that we are the most overinformed and underreflective society in the history of humanity. Spend some time reflecting on who you are. Slow down. Ask yourself that why question over and over again. But you need to know yourself communally as well. You need a person or persons in your life that you can audibly tell the stories you're believing what you're believing and you need a person or persons in your life that can tell you the better story when you're wrong you need someone that knows the bible well enough to tell you the better story when you're telling yourself a false story you need to open yourself up to those different things and I'll leave you with this quote a guy named Mo Williams who's a a artist um he once said this and I think it's powerful if you find yourself in the wrong story leave so think about your story what story are you living in if it's the wrong one you need to get out of it you need to live live in the right one. Um, another question I would ask myself for just deeper knowledge of who I am is if you could title if a book was made about your life and you could give it a title what would that title be what title would you give to the book about you That's a good way of understanding who you are. Let me pray real quick, and then we just got a little bit of time for questions. Sorry. God, thank you for the story of the Bible. Thank you for the gospel. And I pray, God, that it would shape and form us. Um, It would shape and form our view of reality in the world around us. And it would transform our lives daily. We pray all this in your name. Amen. So if you have a few questions, I'd love to answer them real quick. Pay attention to your psychology class. I don't have the answer to that one. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I mean, we, we don't like uh, being told the things we've built our lives around are wrong because that means we have to change. And that can be really scary. by case, I feel like, uh, broadly, uh, I think Mac said it well earlier today that in order to do that, you have to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow him. That is really uncomfortable and really, really difficult. And, uh, a friend of mine says it this way, dying to yourself is hard because sometimes it feels like dying, (laughs) which sounds redundant, but, uh, To die to yourself is an enormous commitment. It's unnatural. It's unnatural. Good. I'll stick around for a few minutes uh, if you want to ask questions not in front of anybody. Or if you (coughs) stick around and I don't get to you Uh, And you see me around the conference, feel free to just approach me. I know I don't necessarily come off super approachable, but I will not be offended if you just stop me and say, hey, I was in your seminar. I have a question. I'm not going to tell you to buzz off or anything like that. So if you have other questions, please, please ask me. Let me pray real quick to wrap this up. God, thank you again for everything that you are. Uh, Thank you for Everything that you have given us in Jesus, I pray that for hearts in this room, that that would be enough. That they would realize and see and understand that uh, the creator of the universe wants them and can provide everything that we need. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Campus Outreach. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without written permission from Campus Outreach. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at conycindy.com.